Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. And Scripture says that the way to do that is to make sure that we're in fellowship First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we usually begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful that we can be here this evening, that we can have this opportunity to study your word, to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us through your word, and that we might be faithful in concentrating, faithful in thinking through what is uh, the issues that are raised tonight and how they relate to our lives and our understanding of uh, your plan for our life and your plan for history. And Father, may we be reminded that uh, everything that we do and everything that we uh, think and everything that we say is to, supposed to be to your honor and glory, and that can only take place, first of all, if we're in fellowship, and secondly, if we are properly uh, oriented to your word. So, Father, we pray that tonight as we study that we would be responsive to what uh, your word teaches us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we are nearing our completion of Revelation 19, and I have one more uh, area of, uh, of, of teaching, one more area of doctrine that I want to cover this evening before we move ahead into the next chapter. And part of what we're going to cover tonight does overlap into, into the events of the next chapter, so it provides a good transition. What I have done is, as we got to the second coming itself, which is summarized in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in that, that one paragraph from 11, verse 11 down through verse 16, we have the second coming of Christ, and then there is a summary of the defeat of the beast, the, the first beast, the second beast, and the defeat of the armies of the Antichrist there in 1917 to 21. Now, these verses in Revelation 19 don't go into all of the detail that Scripture does. And there's a tremendous amount of information given on the day of the Lord, both in terms of its broad sense, referring to the final end-time scenario in Daniel's 70th week, that covers most of that period, but also the specifics of the great and terrible day of the Lord, which focuses our attention on the last part of the seven-year tribulation period when uh, all of the armies of man come together fighting first against one another and then uh, against Israel and ultimately against the Lord, and the Lord returns to rescue and deliver Israel and to defeat Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, to destroy the armies of man and to begin to clean up the planet and to cleanse the planet in preparation for the millennial kingdom. And that's where we come to in our study tonight, is that there is another transition period between uh, between dispensations. Remember, a dispensation is a period of t- time in human history where God administers human history according to uh, certain aspects of what he has revealed to man. It doesn't mean that there are different, um, different ways of salvation. Salvation is always by faith alone in the promise of God. In the Old Testament, the promise focused on a future fulfillment, the coming of the Messiah, 
once Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, then we look back to the cross and so that the revelation that we have in the church age is much more specific than what was given uh, in the Old Testament during the age of Israel. Now, as we uh, have seen in past studies, when the dispensation of the law ended, it ended at the cross. But the cross occurred on the day of Passover, the first day of the Feast of Firstfruits, and the next major feast day after the week of his crucifixion, and by that I'm including the day of Passover, the uh, Feast of First Fruits, which lasted a week, and I mean the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted a week, and the uh, Feast of First Fruits, which was on the day that he rose from the dead. But 50 days after Passover, you have the day of Pentecost, which was the birth of the church. Well, from the day that Christ died on the cross and ended the law for all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament looked to the cross, and when he died on the cross, that was the end of the law in terms of its uh, spiritual significance. And from that point on, uh, there's a transition phase that enters in, and it's not really the age of Israel anymore. It's not really the... Uh, dispensation of the law anymore, but it's a 50-day transition period, and so from that there, and so we go through that that uh, that transition until the church begins on the day of Pentecost. The same kind of thing will occur at the rapture. The rapture ends the church age. At the rapture, all those who are in Christ, those who are dead in Christ, and those who are alive and remain with him are caught up together with him in the clouds. But that just ends the church age. The last seven-year period, or the period of Daniel's 70th week, doesn't begin. The timer doesn't start uh, clicking off until the Antichrist, the uh, prince uh, who is to come, enters into a covenant or a peace treaty with Israel. And that begins the clock again, starts the clock ticking down to the end of the seven-week period, which culminates with the second coming of Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of that seven-year period, there's another transition stage that comes along. And this is a transition stage of 75 days. So... Since we have a 50-day transition between the church, I mean between uh, the law and the church, and a 75-day transition between the end of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, I would suspect that the transition between the end of the church age and the beginning of the of the uh, uh, tribulation would be rather short as opposed to years and years and years. Other transitions that we see in history are all uh, somewhat less than uh, a few months. So, But we can't be hard and fast. That's just sort of speculation based on uh, similarity, but there's no nothing necessary about that that the Lord couldn't uh, have a one- or two- or three-year transition period. So let's begin to look at this 75-day interval. Here's a chart, that uh, <clears throat> pretty good chart that Arnold Fruchtenbaum had in his, uh, in his book on the footsteps of Jesus. And you see the tribulation coming in on the left side of the chart with the last series of judgments, the bold judgments, all of that coming to a conclusion when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And then there's this 75-day interval that occurs between the coming of Christ and the actual beginning or inauguration of the Messianic kingdom. And a number of things are going to take place during this 75-day interval. Now, the central passage that teaches us about this 75-day interval is in Daniel chapter 12. So you might want to turn with me for just a few moments to Daniel chapter 12 to look at those verses. Daniel chapter 12, there's always a question about this that I get at least uh, every year or two. Somebody uh, reads through this and has some question about just exactly what is meant here, and these are the uh, final uh, verses, not the last verse, but the final two verses, less one, in Daniel. And as Daniel closes out his prophecy, he states, 
And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination, and the abomination of desolation is set up, those are events that take place at the same time. Those two events, the taking away of the daily sacrifice, see there's a comma there that's put in in that particular text, which uh, is, is an interpretive decision which shouldn't be there because the Antichrist, according to Daniel chapter 9, ends the sacrifice at the time that he uh, sets up an idol to himself in the Holy of Holies. So it is the abomination of desolation that ends the daily uh, sacrifice. So from that point, which occurs three and a half years into the tribulation period, uh, there shall be 1,290 days. Now remember, the tribulation period is a, a seven-year period. Half of a seven-year period is three and a half years. Now if we were to multiply those numbers out by a 365 and a quarter day year, solar year as we have on our calendar, uh, this would not work out. What we observe from scriptures based on the calendar that the Israelites used, which was a lunar calendar, 30 days per month, a 360-day uh, year calendar, that three and a half years is 1,260 days. And we have this phrase, 1,260 days, used several times in Revelation 11, Revelation uh, 12, 13, uh, in Daniel, and that 1,260-day period is parallel to another phrase, a time, times, and a half a time. So a time would be one year, times would be two years, and a half a time, if you add that together, one plus two plus a half, it's three and a half years. So you have one designation of 1,260 days. Another designation of the same time period is three and a half, or as, um, um, what did I say, um, of three and a half years, 1,260 days, and then, um, and those are equal for each side of the, of the tribulation period. So then you have another designation of, um, 42 months. And that is again equivalent to that same breakdown. So by comparing 42 months to 1,260 days, we see that there we're dealing with prophetic months of, uh, of 30 days. So now we have a period from the midpoint of the tribulation to the end of the, or the cleansing of the sacrifice when the day, when, when there's a cleaning, uh, cleansing of the temple is, goes beyond the 1,260 days to 1,290 days. So this introduces a 30 day period after the second coming for the cleanup of the temple and the clearing out the abomination of desolation. But then verse 12 says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So 1,260 from 1,335 leaves 75 days. So the first 30 days of those 75 days are related to the cleansing of the temple. And then there's another uh, 45 days after that. And that's where we get this, this gap of 75 days between the conclusion of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And so just to give you a summary here, I'll go through each of these in detail. So if I go fast, don't worry about it. I'm not expecting you to write them all down now. You'll get them all by the time we finish. First of all, there's the cleansing of the abomination of desolation from the temple. The second event that occurs is the Antichrist will be resurrected to be sentenced with the false prophet to the lake of fire. And the third point is that the false prophet and Antichrist are then sent to the lake of fire. Fourth, Satan is caught and bound, and then he is cast into the abyss where he stays for 1,000 years. And then fifth, there will be a judgment of the nations, the Gentiles, that is, that are still living. So this involves uh, the separation of the sheep from the goats, the sheep and goat judgment. 
Then there's the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Then the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs. And then finally, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So these are the eight events that take place in this 75-day interval between the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. So the first events, the cleansing of the abomination of desolation, which uh, must take place for the Temple Mount to be cleansed, and so that that begins to prepare for the uh, future temple. It is during this time as well that the Temple Mount is cleansed that I believe that there there's going to be some uh, uh, changes in the topography of Jerusalem. We've already seen the fact that at the when Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, that the Mount of Olives is going to split uh, from east to west so and, and create this rift from uh, west to east so that those Jews, the remnant who have been trapped in Jerusalem, will be able to escape. And this occurs in that final battle between the Lord Jesus Christ and the armies of the Antichrist. So that that's one change that's going to take place. And out of that split that occurs, fresh water will flow. Some of it will flow east into the Dead Sea, which will bring it to life. And the other half will flow towards the Mediterranean. So that's a huge uh, uh, topographical shift. And then there's going to be another shift in the topography as a result of a of a uplift that occurs for the new temple. And this uplift that occurs is going to uh, raise the raise Mount Zion to a new level and a new size. Remember, in the battle that took place in AD 70 when the Romans attacked Jerusalem, they just about destroyed most of the city and burned uh, a, a tremendous amount of it. And that same level of destruction will take place uh, in this particular battle. And so there's a cleanup that takes place. There's the cleansing of the temple. And in this uplift that occurs, this is where the temple uh, that's described in Ezekiel, chapters 40 and following, will be um, will be constructed. And it's it's a mile square. So it's much larger than anything that that would fit on the Temple Mount as it currently exists. So all of this takes place under the cleansing of the abomination of desolation from the Temple Mount, and we'll get into the details on the um, on Ezekiel's temple and the future temple when we come into the studying the period of the millennium in the next chapter. The next thing that happens is the Antichrist has to be brought back from the dead because he's clearly killed, according to Isaiah 14. We'll look at that passage in just a minute. So he has to be brought back from the dead. The the false prophet, though, isn't killed, so the two of them will stand before uh, Christ's judgment before they are then cast into uh, cast into the lake of fire. Now, in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, we have a description, really, of the destruction of the Antichrist and the power behind the Antichrist. If you haven't gone through this chapter with me in the past, this may be a little bit new for you. Most of the time, when people come to Isaiah 14, verses uh, 12 through 15, they focus on this in terms of the fall of Lucifer which it is. I'm not changing that, so don't, don't worry. But we have to be careful in how we read the text. This is one of those odd texts that has a, a sort of a double reference in terms of the timeline. If you're Isaiah and you're writing this in the 7th century B.C., then what's happening is you're looking way down the line to the future. And you come down the line to the time of the second advent, and what happens when the Antichrist gets thrown into uh, gets thrown into the lake of fire? Now, this, some of the specifics uh, in terms of how things are structured aren't as clear to Isaiah as they are to us. So he's, when he talks about Sheol, he is using that term in a general sense to refer to the place of judgment for the dead. That's how uh, that's how Old Testament theology. That's about as specific as Old Testament theology got. 
So he's looking forward to this event that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Now, at the end of the tribulation, this human figure, the Antichrist, who's been empowered and indwelt by Satan for the last at least three and a half years, is the one who, in terms of the human body, gets thrown into the lake of fire. But he is the human personification of Satan. And so when he arrives in the lake of fire, this those who are present take up this taunt. They begin to ridicule him because of his... Uh, ambition that he expressed and that he had the promises that he made that he indeed would, would, would provide everything for everybody and he would be the ruler of the earth. And what they do in their taunt is they, is they remind him of what his original ambition was. So now that throws us back into the past. Okay, so so that can confuse you. You have to watch that timeline. Isaiah is looking all the way to the future at an event that occurs there. And when those in uh, Sheol receive the Antichrist and they they take up the taunt directed at him, but really it goes to the, the power behind him who was Satan and his original ambition, which, of course, had occurred way back before the creation of Genesis 1-1. So now that I've got everybody confused, we'll look at the the passage. Now, at the beginning of chapter 14, actually, let's just go to 14-3. There will be a, there's a time given in 14-3. It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow. So he's addressing Israel. He's addressing the Jews. And when is that time that they have rest? That's a key word in in Old Testament theology, that God rested at the end of six days of creation. He rested on the seventh day. And that, that rest of God's is a depiction of the future millennial rest uh, that will come to Israel. And that's the theme of... Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is the rest of God, which comes with the, with the kingdom. So this places the time uh, of, of 14.3 at the future as the millennial kingdom is about to dawn. It shall come about to pass in the day that God gives you rest from your sorrow, from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger. And so this continues, this taunt against the uh, king of, of Babylon. And then we come to verse 9. Now, if you have the... Uh, New King James, it said, or King James, it says hell, but actually in the Hebrew, it's Sheol. And Sheol is generally the place where the dead go before they are brought uh, either resurrected to eternal life or they are um, resurrected to judgment. Now, remember, Old Testament saints went to a compartment in Sheol called paradise. But that is not revealed in the Old Testament. We don't get that till we get to Luke 16. So they have just this general sense of a place called Sheol that you have the righteous go there, the unrighteous go there. They probably had a vague sense that they're not in the same place. One place would be better than the others, but it's not spelled out anywhere in the Old Testament about compartments in Sheol. But um, so they're just talking generally here in verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited about you. A place of judgment is receiving you with open arms. To meet you at your coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Again, that phrase is used when we get into Revelation, the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, Now, see, that's those who are already inhabiting Sheol are saying this to the one who is being cast into Sheol. They all speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and the worms cover you. 
And then in verses 12 through 14, it is an address to uh, the real power behind the human uh, figure and addresses the fall of Satan. And then when we get down to verses 19 and 20, because that's all I really want to focus on as we look at this, it states, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with the sword, that's his physical, that's how he died physically, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. And so it's the picture that he is trampled underfoot. He is, his body was, was, uh, was abused when he died. Uh, verse 20, you will not be joined with them in burial. See, he's not buried, he's just killed, because you have destroyed your land, slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. And so the um, Antichrist is killed when Jesus returns. He's not buried, but then he has to be brought back to life in order to be judged along with the false prophet. So we have the... First two events now, the cleansing of the temple. Then second, the Antichrist is resurrected and sentenced with the false prophet. And now third, the Antichrist and false prophet will be cast directly and alive into the lake of fire. So that's how you get a dead Antichrist from Isaiah 14 brought back to life for the judgment. And then he and the false prophet are cast directly into the lake of fire. Revelation 19, 20, uh, chapter 19, and verses 20 and 21 spell this out. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And that refers to that big feast with the carrion birds at the end of the battles, and they help in cleaning up the land. So we've covered now the first three events. And the fourth event is that Satan is somehow caught. Uh, he's bound. He's cast into the abyss. So some of the specifics of this, how do you separate Satan from the, there's, from the Antichrist? When he, I guess when the first beast was killed, then Satan would have uh, left him, and then at that point he is uh, captured, bound, and he is cast into the abyss. Now this is described in the next chapter. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is just an ordinary angel. It's not another uh, cherub. It's not a seraph. It's not the archangel. Uh, here you have the mightiest of all the angels, the most uh, intelligent, the most powerful, the leader of this great rebellion, and God is going to uh, humiliate him. He is just arrested by a co common, ordinary uh, messenger angel. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. See, John doesn't want us to miss at the end of the Bible the identification of who the serpent was at the beginning of the Bible that he is the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Now, there are those, and we'll get into this next time when we start our study on millennialism, there are those who want to take the term a thousand years as, as allegorical, that this doesn't mean a literal a thousand years. But if that's true, just remember this, if that's true, then you can't take any of the other numbers in Revelation literally either. You have a real problem. If you're going to suddenly come to this number and say a 1,000 doesn't mean a 1,000, then 144,000 didn't mean 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes wouldn't mean 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls wouldn't mean, wouldn't be literally seven a uh, series of three judgments. And, and again and again and again, you have two witnesses and all of these different um, 
numerical designations all through Revelation, why would suddenly you come to this number and it doesn't mean a thousand? So it's clear that a thousand years must mean a thousand years. And he is cast into the bottomless pit, the abyss, and shut up for, and a seal is placed on him so that he is unable to escape for that thousand year period. So that, and here's the important point, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. Now, the word that's translated nations, as we'll see, is the Greek word ethnos, which also means it's translated Gentiles. Basically, what this is saying is that that one of the major elements of deception in the world, remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the uh, that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to the truth. That one of the major sources of deception and evil in our world today is Satan, either directly or indirectly. Satan and his demonic hordes uh, prevent human beings from clearly seeing the truth through various uh, means of deception. And that won't be true during the millennial kingdom. So once that excuse isn't going to be available. What God is doing in the millennial kingdom is going to be to show that that man deceives himself from his sin nature. Uh, Satan's deception is merely a secondary uh, deception. It's not the real reason man can't blame Satan for his own faults. So Satan is going to be shut up so that he cannot deceive the nations till the thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is going to be arrested and incarcerated in the abyss for a thousand years. So that's the first uh, four events that transpire uh, during this period. Then there's going to be a judgment. There are going to be several judgments because now you have different groups that have uh, survived, and it's time to decide whether they go into uh, into heaven, or I mean, into the millennial kingdom, or to the uh, into Sheol. So the next ju- the next place, and this seems to be the most logical place to put this, is the judgment of the living uh, Gentiles. Judgment of the living Gentiles, the sheep and the goat judgments. Now, this is specifically a Gentile judgment, according to the two passages that we'll look at in Joel 3, 1 through 3, and in Matthew 25. It's very clear that this relates to Gentiles only, and in uh, Joel 3, we see the location of of the uh, sheep and goat judgment. We're told in verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. You know, we might add another element that occurs here in this period of time. And that would be the retrieval of all of the uh, surviving Jews at, at the end of the tribulation. Where uh, in Matthew 13, in uh, the last parable, Jesus talks about the sending forth the angels who will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and bring them to Israel. This is the second uh, second return that is spoken about in Isaiah 11:11, 11, 11, where he the the all of the surviving uh, Jews are brought to Israel. These are all. At uh, this time, they will all be saved. They'll be part of the remnant, and they are they return as um, as as saved. The first return, uh, which is I believe is occurring now, is of unregenerate, but this will be a return of saved Jews, and this takes place uh, again in Joel. That's the reference of Joel three one. Uh, in those days, at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations. This is the the goyim, the Gentiles, all the nations. He's, they're not standing there as nations. We're not going to have uh, Britain over here and France over here and uh, Japan over here and Australia over here and the United States here. These are it's a, it's Gentiles that are brought together, and the it, the Gentiles who have survived the tribulation will now be judged. 
And they will be brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I pointed out as we've studied this that most scholars believe that this is the valley of the Kidron Valley between the temp, that runs between the Temple Mount and the uh, Mount of Olives. But there's others who think that it might refer to the ba- valley of Berachah where uh, they gathered, the people gathered under uh, uh, Jehoshaphat to celebrate the great victory that God had given them. But that's very close to Jerusalem as well. But they're brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and God says, I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. So there it indicates in Joel 3 that the basis for this judgment has to do with Israel. Now, Jesus expands on that in the passage we'll look at in a minute in Matthew 25, but there we see that the attitude of the Gentiles toward Israel becomes a major issue in this judgment. I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Now that certainly resonates in a way today that did not resonate uh, up until uh, you had uh, the land of Israel divided after World War One, and um, there were various times that initially the decision was made that all of the land of what is now Israel and uh, the Transjordan or the Kingdom of Jordan today, all of that was originally supposed to go to Israel under the Balfour Declaration. And then as the 1920s progressed, there were various uh, uh, uprisings by Arabs and reassignments of land, and uh, the kingdom of Jordan had to be given to uh, the Hashemites as a reward for their uh, support during World War I. And so it was decided that the Jews would only get the land on the west side of the Jordan. And then eventually that was pared down and pared down and pared down until it really didn't amount to a whole lot by 1948. And it really would not have been very defensible in light of, uh, it was just sort of a patchwork quilt almost through the land. But because of the uh, Arab uh, assault that occurred when Israel declared their independence and the, and the re- consequent war for independence, uh, Israel was able to secure uh, a, a better uh, position in the land uh, in 1948. But the land is divided. You have this portion of the land goes to the uh, Arab population, this portion of the land for Israel, and you, there are arguments today going on with whether or not Jerusalem uh, should be divided. It's been united since 1967, the Six-Day War, but now there's pressure uh, to to divide it, and believe me, if they can divide it and only give one percent of it to the Jews, and it will not make the Palestinians uh, one bit happier, because their agenda is to destroy uh, Israel, to remove them from the land completely, and they don't want one single Jew left there. Back in uh, 1999 or 2000, uh, when uh, the offer was made by then Prime Minister Ehud Barak to Arafat, uh, made him an offer where they would have divided Jerusalem and given them much of Jerusalem, and Arafat just turned it all down because the real agenda isn't just getting back a portion of Jerusalem. It's for, the, for the Palestinians, it is all or nothing. So until the end of the tribulation, though, the land that God promised Israel is never going to be fully theirs. It is going to be constantly fought over and divided by the Gentile powers who continue to uh, hold sway until the end of the times of the Gentiles, which doesn't occur until the end of the tribulation period. So we see that this judgment takes place at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We see that uh, it is on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, and it has to do with the oppression and anti-Semitism that occurs uh, during that time. And so the basis for judgment then is going to have to do with whether someone has been anti-Semitic or philo-Semitic. Now, that second one may be a new one for you, philo from the Greek word philos, meaning love. Uh, Anti-Semitism is the hatred of 
Jews and philo-Semitism is the love for Jews. And so those are the two options here. A person is going to be either uh, anti-Semitic or philo-Semitic in the tribulation period. Those that are, because Israel is going to be the focal point of the warfare and the focal point of the controversy, it will become clear that only those with any kind of biblical understanding or background will be the only ones who support the Jews. Everybody else will be pushed to be anti-Semitic. It will be part and parcel of the uh, of taking the mark of the beast, and all of this will be a part of that. So Matthew 25 makes this clear. Remember that the real issue in history for salvation is still faith alone in Christ alone. That doesn't change. But for those who have understood that Jesus is the Messiah, in the tribulation period, they will understand what the real issues in life are. Just as those who take the mark of the beast, we're told in Revelation, will fully understand uh, what they're doing. This isn't going to be something that's just accidental. They're not going to get the mark of the beast by uh, inadvertently filling out a credit card application or a mark of the beast application so that they can uh, uh, get, a, get a little... Um, um, UPC-coded uh, thing to fit on their keychain so they can buy groceries at the grocery store. Uh, this is going to come with a oath of loyalty to the Antichrist, and as we studied in Revelation, uh, we're going to see these angels that fly through the air proclaiming the gospel. So it's going to be a different type of environment spiritually than what we see today. The issues will be very clear to everyone as to uh, if they are a believer, how they are to act, and if they're an unbeliever, uh, they'll be acting in an in, in, um, antagonism to God and antagonism to his people. So in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Now, just a couple of things I want to point out as we go through this. The, the Son of Man is the title that is given the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus here directly connects what, what he's talking about at the, in terms of his second coming with Daniel 7 and the coming of the Son of Man who has just received the kingdom at that point. Now, the important point that I'm stressing here is this idea that the kingdom isn't given to Jesus as the Son of Man. Daniel 7 says it's when he gets ready to return, and here it's the same thing. The Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Right now he's not on his throne. He's sitting on the Father's throne, Revelation 3:21. He is like David was when David was in the wilderness in the Old Testament. He's anointed to be king, but he hasn't been crowned king yet, and so he doesn't have the authority of king. He is just as it were the king in waiting, waiting to be given a kingdom. So we are not in any form of a Davidic or Messianic kingdom at this point. Jesus isn't sitting on the throne in heaven. What happens when he sits on his throne? He is given judgment. The judgment is delegated to him by God the Father. Matthew twenty-five thirty-two. All the nations, all the Gentiles will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. The sheep would be representative of the believers, and the goats would be representative of the unbelievers. Back when uh, when I had first-year Greek, we would have little uh, contests and vocabulary contests and quizzes and games at the end of class, and Prof. Hodges would divide us up into the sheep and the goats. It's always a lot of fun with things like that. So we have the sheep and the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand. I always think that's somehow important that Jesus puts the believers on his, they're on the right, not on the left. Uh, he'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, this is when they receive the kingdom. 
Now, remember that phrase because later on in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, you have these passages talking about listing certain sins, and those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom isn't entering into heaven. Inheriting the kingdom is ownership in the messianic kingdom on earth uh, following the second coming. So what we see here is Jesus saying, uh, you will now inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And he's addressing the Gentile survivors of the tribulation. So they're the ones who go into the, uh, go into the tribulation with mortal bodies where they still have sin natures and they can marry and have children and their children will born with sin, be born with sin natures and they will multiply many generations through the millennial kingdom. And at the end, there will be a, a vast number of, of um, mortal human beings with sin natures who never trust in Christ as Savior, even though he is physically, visibly present on the earth at that time. When what does that tell you? That it doesn't have anything to do with evidence. It has everything to do with volition. And so uh, these Gentiles are the ones that enter into the kingdom. Now, in verse 35, we read, what the qualification was. Now, people get really confused on these verses. And listen to your politicians. The last election, I heard several politicians rip these verses out of context and use them and apply them to things like welfare, to things like what a nation should be doing to take care of all of the downtrodden and the poor. Now, the Scripture talks about classifications of those who are unable to help themselves, widows and orphans in, in, that, in that culture. But this isn't talking about feeding the poor. This is talking about protecting Jews who are being persecuted during the tribulation. Jesus says, here's the qualification, for I was hungry and you gave me food. He is using himself as the personification of his people, Israel. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Because they're believers, because they understand what the real issues are during the tribulation period, that when Jews who are being persecuted are seeking protection, the Gentiles who are believers will protect them. They will be the righteous among the Gentiles, which is a term that was used to describe the Gentiles during the uh, during World War II, who protected uh, protected Jews during the Holocaust. Yesterday, by the way, was Yom HaShoah, which is the day of remembrance for the Holocaust that they celebrate in, in Israel, set aside as a memorial in Israel. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It is not talking about a prison ministry here. It's not talking about a hospital ministry. It's not talking about clothing the poor. It's talking about taking care of Jews who are being persecuted during the tribulation period. And this is seen clearly in his in the next interchange. In Matthew twenty five thirty seven, the righteous will then answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? In verse forty, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Okay? Not human beings. You only get there if you've bought into the liberal garbage of the universal fatherhood of God, which came out of liberal Protestant theology in the 19th century, the universal fatherhood of God, that every human being is automatically a child of God because they're born into the human race. And because of that, of course, the logical consequence is that all human beings go to heaven. But Jesus never used it that way. Jesus referred to the Pharisees as you are of your father, the devil. And until you are saved, regenerated, and born again, you all of us were of our father, the devil. We only enter into God's royal family when we trust him as 
as Savior. So when Jesus says, in as much as you did this to one of these, my brethren, you have to study that terminology, my brethren, in the context of Matthew, and it always refers to Jews. It refers to other Jews. It's not referring to human beings. He's talking about the Jews that he is related to as uh, as a member of the tribe of Judah himself. If you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say, verse 41, uh, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the, this occurs at the end of the tribulation. He addresses the surviving, unbelieving Gentiles, and they, like the Antichrist and the false prophet, are sent to the lake of fire. This is their judgment. They don't come back at the great white throne. This is their judgment, and they are sent to the lake of fire that has already been prepared, perfect tense, for the devil and his angels. So the lake of fire is already in existence. It's just sitting out there waiting to be filled. And the fact of its emptiness right now raises the question of why didn't God just send the devil and his angels there to begin with? And that leads us to answer the question in terms of uh, the role of human history has something to do with the postponement of that of that sentence. And as I've taught here, it has to do with demonstrating in human history the grace of God, the love of God for his creatures, and that no creature can, uh, no creature on earth, I mean, no creature at all in all of history can ever do what God wants. Only God can do. And this was Satan's claim. He wanted to rule the universe. He wanted to be like God. And he wanted to be able to uh, rule all of creation as God. And what God is showing is he can't do that. And that whenever any creature acts independently of the creator, then it creates just a, a such a horrible array of unintended consequences that that is why eternity in the lake of fire is a necessary consequence. So he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. And, you know, this is the third time this has been repeated, and it's not. it doesn't end here because they will then say, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, uh, to, and uh, did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so there is this uh, tremendous judgment that takes place for the living, surviving Gentiles at the end of the tribulation. Those who are believers go to uh, go into the kingdom, and those who are unbelievers go into the lake of fire. Now, the next res- next thing that occurs is the resurrection of Old Testament believers. Now, I'm going to go to a chart in a minute to go through the different resurrections, but there are five different resurrections that make up what the Bible refers to as the first resurrection. And the first fruits of that resurrection, of course, is Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead. The second resurrection is the rapture. The third resurrection is the resurrection of the uh, of the two uh, witnesses. And now here we have the resurrection of Old Testament believers as the fourth resurrection, and then the resurrection of tribulation martyrs as the fifth resurrection. Two different distinct groups of, uh, of believers, those from the Old Testament and those who died during the tribulation period. Now, it seems like this event occurs here. Uh, we're not exactly sure what the order is. This seems to be the most logical uh, progression. They are raised by the time we have the scene in Revelation 20, verse 4. There John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. 
Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. These would be the martyrs uh, from the tribulation, those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the first group who are have judgment committed to them, those would be the church-age believers. The second group are the tribulation saints, and they too will reign with Christ for a thousand years. By the time we see them in verse 4, they have already been uh, resurrected. So we see here we have these, uh, we've gone through all the events Now, the last one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, there is not a specific... No, no, I've got to run the animation again. There's not a specific verse that tells us when the marriage feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. We have one verse in Revelation 19.9 which mentions this, and at the time of Revelation 19.9, it's yet future. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So at that point, the marriage supper of the Lamb is yet future. By the beginning of the tribulation, I mean of, of the millennial period, the marriage supper has occurred. So since it involves all those who've been invited to the marriage supper, the Gentiles would need to be resurrected, or the, excuse me, the Old Testament saints would need to be resurrected, uh, tribulation saints would need to be resurrected, uh, tri- tribulation martyrs, all the other judgments would need to be completed. And so the last event would be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, let me, as we wrap up in the last couple of minutes, let me put this chart on the, on the screen to go through the eight judgments and the five resurrections that occur in history. Okay, there's the, the first resurrection, of course, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that occurred at the uh, three days, three nights after the crucifixion. The second Resurrection is when those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain are caught up together with him in the clouds and we receive our resurrection bodies at the timing of the uh, rapture. And during this time there is the uh, first judgment which is the judgment seat of Christ for believers to determine uh, rewards and positions for the kingdom and it is not related to uh, eternal destiny, but just the role in eternal, eternal destiny. Then the tribulation transpires during that seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week, and the tribulation will end with the return of Christ to the earth at the second coming. So by this time, there have been... Um, Five, resur- uh, five resurrections taking place in this first resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, the rapture, the resurrection of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, the resurrection of Old Testament saints, and the resurrection of tribulation saints, and together those occur at the end of the tribulation period. Then you have the second judgment, which is the judgment of the sheep and the goats, which happens... Uh, at the same time, uh, roughly the same time that the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. At the sheep and the goat judgment, the surviving Gentiles and surviving Jews are uh, evaluated. The Gentile believers go into uh, the Millennial Kingdom. The Jews that survive are all saved, Romans 11. They all go into the uh, millennial Kingdom, Old Testament saints are then resurrected and judged, and tribulation saints are resurrected and judged. And that's inferred from the passage. If the tribulation saints, according to what we saw in Revelation 20, verse 4, are going to reign with Christ in the kingdom, then even though a specific judgment isn't stated, it would be uh, inferred, and that would be the logical place for it to take place. So these Old Testament saints 
tribulation saints get their resurrection bodies, and they will also rule and reign in the kingdom along with the church. They're not part of the church, but they will have ruling and reigning responsibilities in relation to Israel. For example, David will be resurrected, and he will be the immediate ruler over over Israel under the uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Then at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is a second resurrection. This involves the unsaved. We'll get into this next time with the uh, great white throne judgment where the unsaved dead are judged and then they are cast into the lake of fire and then Satan is going to be released for a final rebellion and then he will be sent into the lake of fire. So we'll cover that last part next time when we come back and begin our study in Revelation 20 on the Millennial Kingdom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and put together the details of what you have revealed in your word and see how everything fits together and complements one another. Father, reminds us that there is a judgment coming for each of us that just because we are saved and just because we have an eternal destiny in heaven doesn't mean there's not accountability in the Christian life and that there's not a future destiny in relationship to the kingdom. And so our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity are significant because it prepares us for that that future role, that future destiny with you in the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us here with the things we studied this evening. In Christ's name, amen.